Good morning. Way to, way to set your timers. Although for me, it was just, thank you, Apple, for adjusting. Um, I, it was no work on my part, but uh, this morning I will be speak. Oh, actually, hi, my name is Becky, Becky Stapella. And a uh, quick thing, I have, there's no necessarily reason in particular that I'm, I have no qualifications. I just, um, I've just been really admiring watching people over the years do um, these things, and I figured I'd stretch a muscle and do it myself. So, yes. Um, fortunately, I got a really great topic. So, um, pretty easy to talk about um, William Wilberforce and Josephine Butler, and for all who transform the world. Um, I'm going to just do a quick um, prayer. Um, from the Book of Common Prayer. Thank you for writing prayers for us. Um, so if we can bow our heads. Almighty God, who created us in your own image, grant us grace fearlessly to contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression and that we may reverently use our freedom. Help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice in our communities and among the nations, to the glory of your holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So to kind of get us going, I'm going to pretty much kind of try and plow through a little bit of bio between William and Josephine, because they lived an awful long time, and uh, they, they did a lot. So... Um, I just pulled out some facts that I thought were interesting and that I thought would pertain to um, social justice work. So, oh wait, that's right, I went up. It's apparently, it's kind of counterintuitive. Um, so this is the handsome William Wilberforce. Um, William was born August 24th of 1759. He was raised in a wealthy family. Um, when William was nine, his father died and he was sent to live with his aunt and uncle. William's family, um, his mother and father, were raised in the Church of England, but his aunt and uncle were Methodist, so that was not cool. Um, <clears throat> William loved his aunt and uncle, and he loved their church, and he loved the way they were raising him, um, but his mom and grandmother were um, just very upset with the way his aunt and uncle were influencing him, so three years after living with them, they took him back home, and he was devastated by this. He um, uh, this, yeah, he just, he loved them. But, uh, we'll skip ahead. When he was 17, he attended Cambridge. He was kind of a lazy guy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, 17 in Cambridge. But, uh, he didn't take, actually though, he didn't take a schooling too seriously. Um, when his, um, grandfather and his uncle died, he was left independently wealthy. So he didn't really have much to worry about. Um, but uh, he was known for gambling. He loved to go out. He had apparently this amazing singing voice. Um, he uh, was known for being extremely witty. Um, but actually, he still ended up doing pretty well in school. He got like A's and B's. So even though he was kind of a party animal, I don't know. Um, but when he was studying, he began to explore politics. He and a friend would go to parliament, and they would watch um, the proceedings um, whenever they had time. Um, and in 1784, after he'd gotten his bachelor's and master's, he was elected into parliament at the age of 24. So, some goals for everyone. Uh, that same year, William met the Reverend James Ramsey, who was an Anglican minister and was a medical supervisor of the plantations where he was stationed, and he told Wilberforce and his friends about the horrific treatment of slaves. And even though, actually, William was not a practicing Christian at the time, um, he was obviously very influenced by how he was raised, but um, he wasn't himself um, a Christian. Um, and he was obviously very uh, moved by what he heard. But he didn't do anything. He didn't follow up with this guy or anything. Um, but then, um, sorry. Um, in 1785, um, so like two, so a year later or yeah a year later um he read the book the rise of Pro uh, the rise and progress of religion in the soul by philip doddridge 
which sounds riveting, um, but <laughs> uh, which spurred him to read the Bible, pray, and journal his conversion. So he did, um, this spurred him to, um, to Christianity. Um, <clears throat> so since uh, 1784, um, William Wilberforce encountered others who were, I'm going to go like this, um, he encountered others who were against slavery, but he kind of, um, he, he was passionate about it, and you could tell he was interested in it, but I think he was gathering evidence, he was exploring himself, and I think also he was relatively young, and I think he felt kind of, this is a little bit more of kind of from what I was reading, that it seemed like he felt underqualified um, to speak about it. Um, but a lot of people were encouraging him. He had friends who were encouraging him to speak about it, but it took him a little bit to, to kind of get going. He... Um, so when he first, you know, heard about slavery in 1784 to his conversion in 1785 to then his first major speech to parliament on slavery wasn't until 1789. So it took him a little bit just to kind of gather and gather that, you know, steam to get going. But after that, he was on a roll. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, he joined many groups. He was constantly um, just combating um, different arguments. Um, I thought some interesting arguments that he had to face um, were three that I wrote down. Um, one, I think that we've kind of heard a lot, was Africans were lesser humans. And so um, that one I, had, I had, was familiar with, that that was an argument. But, um, but I was surprised to hear um, people argue that, well, the situation in Africa is far worse. So we're actually kind of doing them a favor by keeping them here. They're actually safer over here, even though it is labor. Um, it's better than where they'd be in Africa. And then another argument was kind of to, to kind of be like, okay, William, slow your roll. Um, let's try and do something gradually. Let's do gradual abolition. Um, and I felt like, I, I feel like I've, I've, I'm familiar with these arguments myself, just in even current events. Sometimes you'll hear those same arguments. Um, I thought this was one thing that he wrote that I thought was, um, this is a quote from William. I mean not to accuse anyone, but to take the shame upon myself, in common, indeed, with the whole Parliament of Great Britain for having suffered this horrid trade to be carried on under their authority. We are all guilty. We ought all to plead guilty. And not to ex uh, ex ah, exculpate. I don't know if I got excited. Um, <laughs> um, ourselves by throwing the blame on others. And I therefore deprecate every kind of reflection against the various descriptions of people who are more immediately involved in the, this wretched business. And I thought it was kind of Pollyan of him to kind of say, like, you know, we are guilty to take the blame upon ourselves and kind of to throw yourself down and say, um, we are all guilty in this and to take the responsibility upon himself, even though he's actually um, the one advocating against slavery. Um, he went on, he did so many things. So these are just kind of some small snippets of his life. He lived a long time. But um, on July 26, 1833, the government guaranteed the passing of the bill for the abolition of slavery. And three days later, William Wilberforce died. So he heard, yeah, so he heard um, the passing of his bill uh, three days before he died, which is pretty incredible. Um, and so... I know that was kind of quick, but I just wanted to open the floor for just a little bit of discussion. Any questions about William? Anything that kind of struck you? It's okay if there's nothing. Yes? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I totally could look that up. I could let you know, because um, I would love to learn more about the Reverend... Um, uh, what was his name? Yeah, James Ramsey. He was incredible. He was a surgeon. He um, he was an abolitionist. So sometimes you kind of you you research one person and then you find out there's like eleven other people who did just as incredible things, um, and you'd love to talk about them. But of course, we don't have time. Yeah.
Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, he, so when, when he first, oh, yes, I'm sorry. I get what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I think some like someone someone like to say it was a moderate amount. He uh, he, he, <laughs> he was very tempered with his cocaine. No. Uh, <laughs> I say that it's not like unlike opioids right now in terms of people take them for the right reason, but end up in the wrong place. He um, he had ulcerative uh, colitis, and he and um, so he there was actually times where he would. Um, he had like plans to maybe give a big speech and then he'd be really, really sick. So I think it started out that he was doing, it was like medicinal marijuana to treat it. And then I, I think it was a little, it was self-medication with, um, and I don't, I didn't read too much about it where it's like, I don't, I don't know for, you know, um, about the medicine at the time. Like, yeah, but he definitely had, he, he had Absolutely. That even that, and, and that none of these people are perfect. That we find. I mean, um, honestly, I. Um, it's it is ironic that um, that William is in the same line in the litany as Josephine Butler. They would have clashed. I, I have a I have a quote that he didn't believe in what Josephine would have been doing because she was a woman. He you know so it's like he wasn't perfect. He didn't you know he he fought for abolition, but he definitely didn't fight for women. Um, so. That's that's an interesting thing. Um, so I just don't know the, some of the historical context. Was was slavery being practiced in Britain the same way that it was being practiced in America? Yeah, it seems to be. It was it was very um, kind of the similar stories that you'd hear of you know they're they're bringing people over from Africa. Eighty percent of their external income, like as an economy, was from the slave labor. So cotton. Um, yeah, it was, so when you even think about people that in parla Parliament that might have been even having um, a reasonable argument for um, pro-slavery was our economy would crash if we got rid of the slaves, you know, so same, same kind of thing that we were dealing with in America, I, I think, very similar. <laughs> That's my father-in-law. <laughs> I think it sounds like um, it, that's it's debatable. I think that I'm sure that we're still dealing with certain things um, of, of from that bill. Um, yeah, that they had promised that they'd pass it. It did take a long time before things were. Um, um, I wish I could say yeah. I wish I could say a little more eloquently, but that they were they kind of did. It was um, it was a gradual move, and that was the bill did. I think William did have to concede on certain points where to kind of meet halfway with the people who were. Um, saying gradual abolition of saying, okay, let's pass a bill where let's get it going of kind of step by step that um, certain slaves would then work for another six years and then be able to like get paid and then be free kind of. So there was some stuff like that that obviously is very complex and yeah. Anything else? Okay, I'll be quick to move on to Josephine Butler who I am just such a fan. <coughs> Me. One second. Oh, that's right, I it's double-sided, silly me. Okay. Josephine. So Josephine Butler, Josephine Gray, was born April 13th of 1828. So she and William kind of overlapped just a little bit, um, which is kind of, um, actually, it was funny because when William had made a quote about 
um, not wanting women to be involved in politics. It was actually the same decade that um, Josephine was born, so I thought that was kind of funny. Um, <clears throat> Her father was a politician involved, actually, in the civil rights movement and in, in, uh, the abolition of slavery and um, the reform of welfare laws for the poor. Um, so he was a very socially minded um, creature. And, um, and this was how she was raised. Um, her father treated her and her male siblings um, equally, educating them on social and political issues. He would even have the women, like have Josephine there when he would have political friends over. So she was very much integrated into her father's political life. Um, they were raised in the Anglican church. And um, this was the attitude, I think, that really helped shape Josephine throughout her life because we see um, even as a young girl, that she was very socially minded. Um, for example, when she was 17, she was riding her horse and came across a disturbing sight of a man who had hung himself. And she recognized him, and she learned that he had killed himself because he'd been fired from his job as a valet because he fathered an illegitimate child. And, um, and some historians think that it was this experience that... Um, that Josephine became disenchanted with the church. She, uh, she actually said this of her priest. Uh, she said her priest was, quote, an honest man at the pulpit who, um, who taught us loyally all that he probably himself knew about God, but whose words did not even touch the fringe of my soul's deep discontent. She was an incredible writer. I just got chills. Um, in, um, instead, uh, she began to fervently seek God um, by herself. It was lonely, it was difficult, and she didn't do it out of um, obedience to God. She did it out of a true desire to know him more deeply. When she was 23, she married a like-minded man named George Butler. They seemed adorable. Um, while, um, while she and her husband seemed like a dream team, I obviously had a... Uh, <laughs> had thoughts on their relationship. Um, the community in which they lived was not one that appreciated women. Uh, one, uh, at social gatherings, Josephine was often the only woman who was present, and she had to overhear men speak disparagingly of women. One conversation in particular um, spoke about Elizabeth Glasgow, who wrote um, a more famous book, uh, North and South. But her novel, Ruth, um, where there's a, a plot point where a woman, uh, a poor woman, is seduced by a rich man, and then he abandons her. And the men believed that it was natural for a woman's lapse in judgment to be seen as far worse than a man's lapse in judgment. And she didn't say anything at the time, but this really, th these kinds of conversations really bothered her. But she had wonderful George, and at this time, um, Josephine and her husband George supported these causes that centered on social justice. Um, they were in support of the Union or the North and the ab abolition of slavery, which led them to be ostracized by their community. Um, and, but they, um, they went on. They had four children. But in 1864, tragedy struck when Josephine's youngest daughter, Eva, died falling from their home's top floor banister. Um, of course, Josephine was so distraught by what happened, she did not write about it for 30 years. She had a lot of difficulty sleeping, and she suffered depression. Um, so one of her ways of coping was that she sought out those whose pain was greater than her own. Um, two years later, the family moved um, because uh, her husband got a new job uh, as a headmaster, and this was when she was first exposed to workhouses. Um, workhouses are, I wish I should have done a picture. It's not that big. This, like, it's an actual workhouse that she, I think, worked in. Um, and this, it, it was probably, I don't know, I think of like Madeline, like the, the house. It's just, it's, when you're talking that it housed 5,000 people, you're like, oh, that's not enough room. <laughs> um, but Josephine would sit with the women, um, often in the cellar, and they were doing harder labor. And she would sit with them, and she would hear their stories, and she would pray with them. Um, but these people were, um, were living as prisoners. Um, one thing that um, 
that this experience brought her to was that she learned about the Contagious Diseases Act, which was established in 1864. So she's, she's learning about this in 1866, two years later after this rule was established, to reduce the spread of sexually transmitted diseases specifically within the Army. Uh, under this law, police had the authority to check women for disease, diseases indiscriminately, and this was not a pleasant experience. Um, as you might imagine, how, how do you check for, um, for sexually transmitted diseases? If the women were found with a disease, they were sent to a workhouse um, from three months, it started out, and then it was to a year, and then for some indefinitely, especially for terminal cases. Um, as, um, George and Josephine started to keep some of these women in their home, especially those who were in the ending stages of their terminal illness. Um, but eventually, they founded a home for these for um, that could house more women, and then they weren't subjected to hard labor. labor. It was more like sewing and, and that kind of stuff, but that, a place where they could live safely. Um, <clears throat> one case that Josephine used to campaign against the um, Contagious Diseases Act was the Percy case. Um, the Percy case involved Mrs. Percy, an actress and widow who was raising three children. Um, she was accused of being a prostitute. Uh, and while she was never arrested, she was spied on, she was um, denied work, um, she was um, threatened um, to have um, the examination forced upon her. Um, so she wrote to the newspaper explaining her, her situation. And, um, and it, less than a month after sharing her story, she killed herself rather than face the humiliation of this examination. So the, this caused national news coverage. Um, and Josephine and other organizations used this to, you know, to combat the act. Throughout this ordeal, Josephine um, faced a lot of anger and uh, persecution. <laughs> she had... Uh, uh, what is it? I'm trying to think of a nice word. Ex excrement thrown at her. Uh, she had uh, her windows smashed. She had um, she had threats. She was once chased down a street. Um, a lot of uh, like by brothel owners and stuff like that. Um, at this time, prostitution was legal. So in her mind, when she's talking about this, she's saying these are women trying to make a make a living. So it's even it's kind of different today, where you'd say, well, it's illegal. It it wasn't at the time. Um, one of the main arguments she faced was stated by a committee member stating, quote, there is no comparison to be made between prostitutes and the men who consort with them. With one sex, the offense is committed as a matter of gain. With the other, it is an irregular indulgence of a natural impulse. Some of these girls were as young as 12. Um, in 1875, uh, Josephine formed the International Abolitionist uh, Federation, which fought for improved state regulation um, of prostitution and, quote, the abolition of female slavery and the elevation of public morality among men. Um, I think what Josephine was facing a lot of times was that men were not held accountable, especially like in the army, where that diseases were being spread. Um, through sex with prostitutes. But while removing the prostitutes, diseases were still being spread through the men, but no one was checking them. Um, in 1880, Butler wrote her first piece about the prostitution of young women. Girls as young as 13 were legally uh, able to be prostituted, and while 13 was the legal age, Josephine wrote that women were also younger. Um, this was so cool. She filed a deposition in Belgium where she hired a, a private investigator um, with evidence accusing the head of the police, his deputy, and 12 brothel owners um, of, of um, illegal prostitution and, and also for the police aiding these brothels. And in the end, all were imprisoned for their roles in sex trade. Um, in, uh, uh, she she just went on. She, she literally, her whole life, continued to um, advocate um, until her death uh, in 1906. Um, but Josephine was not just a campaigner for women. Yes, she fought all her life for the better treatment of women, for women's rights to vote, for education. But she also fought for children, for the family, and she fought for racial equality. 
In her life, she published more than 90 written works campaigning for the rights of others. And I love this. Josephine's favorite phrase was, quote, God and one woman make a majority. <laughs> so that is, then um, I'll open the floor for any discussion with her as well. English, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She actually, the University of Durham, which um, was named, uh, was because um, that's where I think they lived. They lived in Durham, I think, yeah. Yes. Absolutely, I. Yeah. I was kind of hoping that you would have brought that up. I don't know anything about Wilberforce on that matter because, of course, he died at the very beginning of the um, the African expansion, the the race for Africa, as it would be called. Uh, I did a quick Google search, and it does look like Josephine Butler opposed um, colonialism, but. Um, Absolutely, and I'm really looking forward to yours because I think that would be. I would love to learn more about that. I absolutely. I, I felt like even even the push for Christianity. Sometimes there us in in the um, we have incredible Christians who are social social justice warriors, um, but sometimes it can get. Um, the, the push for Christianity in other cultures, um, that sometimes it's a, a quid pro quo. It's like, well, if you become a Christian, then we'll help you. Um, I felt like sometimes when I was reading some of these people's thoughts in their journal entries, that there was not so much even a push for um, just making these people's lives better, but just focused on conversion. And, and I think that there, there is something to be said about that as well. Yeah? Okay, great. Cecil Rose. Cecil Rose. Oh, sorry. Sorry, what? Who? Rhodes. R.H. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, um, oh, sorry, yeah. Yes. Well, so the book that I read was, was the book, the movie was based upon by Eric Metaxas, so, um, which is by the same name. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, a, that's literally very encompassing of, of his life. Yeah. I think you, I mean, pretty much. <laughs> I did the math from her death to now. <laughs> um, you, I love that you brought that up. Thank you. Um, it's crucial. But um, my purpose really of this catechesis is to have discussion um, in how these two people relate to today. Wow. Seth, I think you bring up a great point that, you know, um, that we still have issues 
and that I, I think that even the points that you bring up, we're facing them today. Um, and um, <clears throat> I guess uh, I will just kind of keep moving, especially I like that you brought up um, Amazing Grace because that was the book that I, that I used. And from the very beginning, um, to research, obviously, written by Eric Metaxas. If any of you have read um, Eric Metaxas's work, you know he is a phenomenal writer. Um, but from the very beginning of his book, I was troubled by some of the things that he said. Um, I have um, one quote that I'll read. He said, there's hardly a soul alive today who isn't horrified and offended by the very idea of human slavery. We seethe with moral indignation at it, and we can't fathom how anyone or any culture ever countenanced it. But in a world into which Wilberforce was born, the opposite was true. Slavery was as accepted as birth and marriage and death, and was so woven into the tapestry of human history that you could barely see its threads, much less pull them out. Everywhere on the globe, for 5,000 years, the idea of human civilization without slavery was unimaginable. And I, I think, um, actually, I wish, I, I actually think I got, I, I, this was one, <laughs> this, is, this is my kind of whammy. Um, I thought this one was really, I guess actually I'm just going to kind of go into it. Um, I think, I wonder what it would be like to read Amazing Grace um, during um, maybe even 30 years ago, um, 50 years ago. Um, when, I, when I read this, I think um, we still have KKK members, we still have neo-Nazis. Um, I thought it was interesting, Dr. Martin Luther King said the following about racial injustices of his day. He, quote, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the African American's great stumbling block in his stride towards freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klan clanner, or sorry, Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to be, to be a, I'm sorry, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. And I think we can be guilty of assuming the issues William and Josephine faced um, were solved years ago. Um, but when we look at their opponents, some of their arguments are ridiculous, but some of them seem reasonable or even familiar. Um, even William Wilberforce himself, I, as I said before, was, would have been against Josephine Butler. Um, he didn't believe women should be politically active. Um, evil can have sophisticated and even compelling arguments. For example, um, the reasoning that if the slave trade ended too abruptly, the economy would crash, therefore we should institute gradual abolition. Um, I've heard very similar arguments to other social issues. Um, and I guess actually I'm just kind of curious if anybody has had, if, if this jogs anybody's memory for current issues today where, you know, that we're, right now we're facing opposition or any of those arguments, if there's any thoughts. Yeah. I think the environment is. Yes. And the kind of interesting response we have there's a problem with it, you think you would investigate it more thoroughly and throw a lot of money. If we're not sure what's going on, you would massively commit research to it. And we're going through now, currently, a process of just treating it as if it's really not in existence at all. I talked to a person about uh, the removal of straws, which I think is a very small little thing. And he said, you know, yeah, sure, but, but we can't rush these things. We need to gradually get rid of straws. And so when I read that gradual abolition, that was the first thought that popped into my head. I was like, oh, man, we have a long way to go. Yes, Micah. Yeah, well, you've got this sentence here, like, oh, for 5,000 years, the idea of human 
I mean, and here we are today with just horrific income inequality. In mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, and it really disproportionately affects people of color. I have stats. Yeah. If you go to Whole Foods down Lincoln Park, the only people of color who are there are the ones who are Instacart shoppers for all the rich white people who live there. Wow. And, um, yeah, you're talking about raising the minimum wage to $15, and there's opposition to that. Like, are you kidding me? $15 in two years? Can we, can we bring it up to, like, $20? No, no. Yeah. That's, that's unimaginable, right? Absolutely. It is unimaginable. Yeah, I think record. Um, <laughs> Just to add to that, like, there is, you know, it's not like we've gotten rid of slavery, you know. Like, if you look at, like, your phone, for example, right, you know, you, if you dig down deep enough into how it's made, like, you know, first the factory conditions where it gets put together, yes. then the situations where people are actually, like, mining the minerals that make mm -hmm. it up. Like, you were talking about literal slavery. Yes. There's, um, there's a website where you can look at, like, um, how your clothes are made. Um, like, for example, Hanes. Um, Haynes is um, uh, when you kind of rate how it compares, not only do they treat their workers horribly, they actually beat them. So um, things to like, uh, I, I should, share, should have shared the website, but it kind of rates different um, companies and how they treat people. Uh, and I think that is incredibly um, enlightening. Yes, Bruce. Over here, Seth. It's an extremely complex, yeah. Absolutely. Oh yeah, no, we absolutely It is, I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm glad you're bringing this up because I, I think we have so many issues that we don't even know about. Yeah. Justice is 
as opposed to what does this world and this culture teach me? Huh. And so I'm very, very concerned as I listen to this because I don't know where those distinctions are. And I think there are some very real distinctions. Joy knows. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 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 no. I see it like obviously when I was putting this together, I know that it's a very complicated, I know it's a very contentious issue. I absolutely, um, I feel that weight. Um, I know that there's not a simple answer and I obviously, I want to, um, I don't want anyone to feel like I have, you know, that I don't hear or that I don't understand that it is a complicated issue. Um, but in light, I, I do want to share just a few statistics. I, we're, we have about um, like you know, 10 minutes roughly until we have to uh, end. And in light of this conversation, I think it'd be a really great idea for us to just, um, before we close, that we would just get on our knees and that we would pray about what we can be doing. Um, and also just as, as a, an introspection. It doesn't have to be, you know, I'm not trying to put you know, uh, an agenda on anybody, but I think to explore internally what we can be doing as the church in this time. Real quick. Yeah, I would love for you to share that resource with the website because I feel like sourcing our clothes and sourcing our chocolate and coffee and yeah. things is just a great way to begin. Yeah, I'll share that. Yeah. I just want to say that one of the tremendous difficulties that the question that Rich raised of the relationship between a Christian agenda and a secular agenda cuts right across every conceivable party line. Right. Uh, the question yeah. uh, is, is not just a question to be asked of someone like AOC, but it's also a question to be asked of the current president of the United States. Absolutely, yeah. And I want to get to you. Do you want to jump to your statistics before I Oh, yeah, maybe so. Yeah, yeah. I'll just do real quick. Okay. Um, so um, real quick, this was just something that, um, so I picked just one topic of just um, uh, racial inequality. Um, this is Ruby Nell Bridges Hall. Um, she was the first African-American um, child to be, dis uh, to be um, basically, this was one school in Louisiana that she was integrated into. And she had to be, um, um, a U.S. Marshal had to escort her to and from school. Um, she's going to turn 65 this year. Um, this is not that long ago. Wow. Um, so this is um, um, a statistic from 1968 to 2011. Um, and as you can see, so this is, um, this is school integration. And as you can see, it is on the rise. It's increased. Um, I'm sorry, sorry, I said integration meant segregation. Um, so I know I'm going through these kind of fast, but I just wanted to just send. 
Um, this was, uh, this was uh, an article from the New York Times, and I thought it was kind of cute that you could like click buttons and you could take like a ABCD quiz. Um, for every $100 earned by an average white family, how much do you think is earned by an average black family? Um, it's a little over half. Um, but while that's um, income, um, I'm gonna skip this one and say, um, when it comes to the wealth gap, black households hold less than seven cents on the dollar compared to white households. Um, if you read through this, this line, um, there's a lot of black households that have, oh, like a, a median, they have negative net worth. Um, so when we talk about poverty lines between um, black and white households, it's staggering. It's staggering. Um, and I just, I know we don't have a lot of time, and I want to get to your piece. Um, but I just wanted to share, I've, um, again, um, collectively, black households own less than 3% of the, the nation's total wealth. Um, so that's just, um, and, and then around just. around 15% of the, of the population of the U.S. Oh yeah, make up 15% of the population of the U.S. Yeah, I just want to make sure that was said in the mic. Yeah, so like, addressing the, the gap between the Christian side of social justice and the secular side of social justice, um, it's interesting because how similar they are. Um, and obviously, um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And of course, him saying that goes all the way back to Augustine. But in between the two of them is Marx, who said the exact same thing, basically. Um, and so, since then, we pretty much have this, this secular right, narrative of, of a culture arcing towards justice and a Christian, right? And one of them is Augustine, and the other one is Marx. And I think the difference between um, the Christian and the secular side is that in, the, in Christianity, it's through the church, right? It's through Christ. And it's in the church that the dividing wall between all people is brought down. Um, and there's this universal reconciliation that takes place. Um, in the secular way of looking at it, it's um, there isn't just this leveling and this universal quality. Rather, it's those who are high are brought down and punished and destroyed, and the lower become the oppressors. That's the narrative that I see. Um, and um, I see in the Christian narrative there is a, a reconciliation and a redemption, and all of us need forgiveness, right? Um, whereas I think there's a there's a self-righteousness and even a, a religiosity to the uh, to the secular social justice movement, um, which makes me very uncomfortable. I'm not saying that Christians should not be on the side of social justice, but I'm always nervous about using the same language for social justice that um, is used in the secular world because of the um, the authoritarian. Um, um, fascists, even though they call themselves anti-fascists, they're just fascists against you rather than, you know, actually, say, having a universal character of themselves. Yeah. Jennifer, did you have? Yeah, but we, um, I love what you're saying, Sterling, and one thing that I think we need to keep in mind when it comes to the language we use is that when Jesus looked at the Ten Commandments and uh, that were given to his Jewish people, and he called them down. He said, this really comes down to two things, love God and love people. So to me, this falls obviously into the category of how do you love your neighbor? And uh, and I think that to Joy's point, it's a matter of discernment, it's a matter of prayer, uh, it's a matter of which neighbor is right in front of me that I'm going to love today, and is there a neighbor globally that I need to love, and how do I do that? And then, I mean, the how, of course, is this huge question. <laughs> I'm going to do these two people real quick, and then we'll, I know we're, I know we've got three minutes left. Um, I would just uh, say that, I mean, when I think of Christians who really cared about justice, I mean, I do think of like Martin Luther King, and I think of 
people like the Cappadocians, like St. Basil, um, Gregory of Nyssa, um, Gregory of Nazianzen, and they had a lot to say about economics. And I mean, I would really just, I mean, Basil's sermon to the rich and to the poor is staggering. It's, it's amazing, I love it. And I think that's just kind of a, a recommended reading. <laughs> Just a plug for, for Butler here. Like, as you're, I like what you've shared. I mean, these are the most complex social issues, socioeconomic issues in the country right now. Yes. Like, black white inequality, intra white inequality, wealth inequality. Uh, it's, it's unclear what to do about them. As you look at Wilberforce, it, it was this beautiful binary. Like, there's this odious trade in slaves. Let's abolish that. But as you look at Butler, uh, you know, Josephine Butler, like, women's rights. That seems a nice parallel to me of like, what do we do here? This is complicated. It's going to be multifaceted. It's going to take decades. Like, some may be radical, some may be incremental. There's, I'm seeing more for me to reflect on in the Butler case of like, and as you say, like introspectively, what can we do? She saw what she could do with the women around her. I think some of us would love like, where's the, you know, where's the binary for us to fight for? Maybe it's the climate, probably not. That's also super complicated, right? But, like I would love to fight against slavery like Wilberforce did, but maybe Butler is a great you know, motivator for us in thinking about these incredibly thorny and complex issues that we do in different ways, some dramatic Absolutely. and some moderate, right? Yeah. I think, and that's great. I, I, what I'll do to close before we then just do a quick prayer um, is just to say that we have so many issues, and I, and I think that there's even maybe, I, I would love to think that there's people sitting in this room thinking, you know what, Should, no one brought up this issue, but this issue is, has been on my heart. Um, I would, you know, whether or not it's the, um, I'm sorry, the ecosystem, the, the environment, women's issues, or slavery and, and wealth inequality, um, I think that what I want to encourage is that these people, you know, Josephine wasn't in Parliament like William was, but she used her her means to to make change. And William was in Parliament; he went the policy route, and and so these people took different actions to fix issues that they saw in their in their time. And so all I ask in the end is that we take some time to consider the issues of our time and what we can do to change them. So with that, if we can just bow our heads, I'm just going to read this prayer again from the Book of Common Prayer, the Christian Common Book of, prayer, Book of Common Prayer. Almighty God, who created us in your own image, grant us grace fearlessly to contend against evil, and to make no peace with oppression, and that we may reverently use our freedom, help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice in our communities and among the nations, to the glory of your holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.